Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books. And check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. This is where I understood that our role as a physician has to be more than prescribing treatments. Mm -hmm. I think we... Uh, my understanding is if you treat the disease, maybe sometimes you're missing treating the person. Mm -hmm. So, if, but if you treat the person, you cannot miss treating the disease as well. So it's mm -hmm. two different concepts. So, and, and I'm starting slowly to shift to treat the person more than treating the disease. That was Dr. Christian Nitsamira founder and executive director of the African Center for Research on End-of-Life Care in Rwanda. Christian introduced palliative care and end-of-life care into health services for Rwandan cancer patients and in the community setting. Today, we discuss challenges with providing palliative care in Rwanda, his new book, The Safari Concept, and things we can learn from each other that transcend country and culture. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The Waiting Room Revolution starts right now. So Christian, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank welcome. you. Thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you've been described in, you know, on, there's been lots of write-ups about you. There's been described as a pioneer of integrating palliative care into healthcare for cancer patients in Rwanda and beyond. Uh, like, what is it like being a palliative care physician um, in Africa, in Rwanda? Uh, it's a it's a particularly challenging because um, based on uh, some of uh, the local realities, uh, when we can't get access for basic, um, let's say, um, treatment for pain management, especially uh, morphine, uh, for those who have severe pain, uh, and also the whole framework from uh, for palliative care, uh, the multidisciplinary team, and also integrating the, the health system. Yeah, we, we have a lot and lot challenging, um, but I think uh, everything has been described for so many articles. But, but my, I think my understanding and my perspective is to see um, despite all those challenges uh, what is the what is the opportunity and um, I think um, the opportunity is to provide palliative care and what is the, re the, the resources available uh, in the country and what we can do um, to have um, I can't say the same model of palliative care from my colleagues uh, around the world, but I think to have our one, uh, own model of uh, palliative care. Christian, I, I have a question on behalf of the listeners who may not understand why it's so difficult to get morphine in Rwanda. Like what, what are the, I know this is a big issue, but what are the main barriers? Uh, uh, 10 years ago, it was difficult, but now um, it's it's accessible. Uh, it's accessible uh, because uh, after the genocide against the Tutsi, um, morphine was not available because, of course, there is because of policies and also myths. 
myth mm -hmm. behind mm -hmm. prescribing morphine. Uh, uh, policies, because um, that is, uh, we need to go back, uh, you know, during the colonial period when morphine was totally restricted um, mm -hmm. to be prescribed by by local people and um and, and that you know until uh, until recently when people starting some countries starting to rethink um to change the policies and um it's in 2011 when uh, Rwanda uh, became the first African country to adopt a national policy of palliative care uh, implementation plan, plan uh, for in the whole system when morphine now starting to be um, available uh, mm -hmm. in the counter morphine syrup. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, before that, that was a little bit uh, difficult. So mm -hmm. this is the part of the policies. And so now we have the myth, you know, and uh, most people and part of some of our education uh, people uh, think that morphine as and deaths. So mm -hmm. if you prescribe morphine, patient will die. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So and it's still rooted on some part of uh, not in Rwanda, but some of um, African country. I used to travel and see how people are still afraid to prescribe morphine. And um, yeah, and you have myth and you have policies as the most challenged. Um, um, situation in the most African, but in Rwanda, since we have the policy and we are able to push and to describe what is really important for the patient. Mm -hmm. So um, before uh, 2011, the quantity was used in the whole country was well, around 0.2 kilogram of morphine mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. uh, but now we are between 10 and 15 kgs per year, mm. which you can see how um, there is a big change. Of course, the estimation for the whole country is almost 97 kgs of morphine mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the last, I think for the last 10 years, um, there is a big step have been made. And we hope uh, in the coming years, we have more and more um, colleagues mm -hmm. will prescribe morphine for those who... You know, I... Um... I've heard you speak and you, you've used this quote before. I want to share with the listeners. It says, when you are well, you belong to yourself. and But when you're sick, you belong to your family. And so yeah. what did you mean by that? Can you expand on I that? I love that quote. I was going to tweet it out <laughs> when I read it. <laughs> this came from my um, uh, ethnography uh, research in Rwanda because uh, um, during my master program, uh, master's program in in Boston, um, uh, which is the program is was part of uh, the later Paul Farmer uh, in Boston, global health and social medicine. So I was trying to understand um, the end of life care on pre and post colonial period. What we gained, what we lost, and how modern medicine could be combined with traditional perspective and perception of care. Uh, in terms of uh, sustainability. And uh, because during the COVID-19, we had that experiences that when uh, external funding withdraw, care continues. So, and for me, it was really important to understand why, uh, despite all the challenges, care continues. And then during my ethnography uh, research, uh, I just realized that uh, in, in the Rwandan culture, 
um, when there is a disease which can fracture individual society and the community, the role of the community is to come and cover that nudity from, uh, from the patient. And uh, it came from a different saying from my interviews with patient family members and uh, part of the community. And then I came up with this, uh, um, you know, um, quote and when uh, it's well described in my uh, local, uh, my mother language, that when you are well, belong to yourself, but when you are sick, you belong to your family. So it came uh, to, to, it represents how the community uh, working together. It's not about the patient in himself. Mm -hmm. and the patient is not isolated from his community, but person is part of the community. And uh, one side you have the patient autonomy and other side you have the community responsibility. So it's mm -hmm. both in terms of decision-making uh, can, I mean, really important on, uh, on the Rwandan society. I, I think that is... Um... Uh, you know, every country has its disadvantages and advantages, but that would be a major advantage uh, in my mind, yeah. where it is a natural part of the culture, that it is a community event, you know, a responsibility that when someone is sick, you participate in the care, where here, it is almost like families, for families, it's a disturbance uh, yeah. in their occupation or um, and we talk a lot about caregiver burnout and caregiver distress and uh, families don't in you know here the culture isn't that people don't assume one day you're going to be a caregiver and you know have to wrap yourself around a loved one um, we we avoid thinking about these things it's just not a not this idea of community responsibility to a sick person is um, not as prevalent as Rwanda. So I, I think that's a, a beautiful thing about the culture in Rwanda. Yeah, I think it's so it's a part of the um, last year when I was in Magil and when I discussed with uh, Bernal Point, it's more about exchange experiences. I think we, we need to learn from each other. Um, and uh, I've learned on my experiences uh, under my education uh, most part of uh, palliative education, I got it from US, and I, and I've learned a lot, and I've learned a lot from US. Uh, but the idea here is to share with my colleague from from US and Europe and everywhere to say, uh, I've learned as we learn from you. Uh, would you mind also uh, learning from us because we need to create that platform where everyone can we can change. As you said, there is. Uh, advantage and disadvantage everywhere, but let's learn from best practice. And uh, th that is, I think, on my understanding is really important in how we can involve uh, human resources, community. It's something which was my first trip in the US was a very, it was a shock. Uh, I was doing um, kind, kind of fellowship observership uh, in uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, shadowing my my mentor, uh, Eric Krakow, and um, as we spend a lot of time, so the first time, it was my first time in a US hospital, and uh, we went to the room, and I saw the room was so big and fancy, and I was joking, like, you know, Eric, you know, I can live here with my whole family, so the people, 
<laughs> I can, you know, you have a TV and everything so far. I was like, wow, how can they can live in this kind of uh, end of room? But uh, the shock for me was to see the patient was alone and surrounded by pictures, old mm-hmm. type of pictures, black and white and colored pictures. Mm-hmm. And I was asking my uh, my residency, where are they? Because I can saw the patient in in the pictures was happy and mm-hmm. surrounded by so many people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where are they now? Mm-hmm. Of course, he told me that, you know, the context in the U.S., uh, you have uh, people living West Coast and uh, sometimes it's kind of difficult. But I told Eric, I'm sorry if I don't understand, but try to explain to me. Because from East Coast to West Coast, every hour you have a flight mm-hmm. from different airlines, mm-hmm. Southwest, Delta, you have Jet. <laughs> so how can you explain to me that someone in the picture mm-hmm. cannot just travel for the last days and hours, mm-hmm. especially in the U.S., you have a matrix to measure uh, the dying person and understand that in the just in terms of hours to days this person may mm-hmm. gone. so why that person cannot travel because in Africa and I was trying to just tell him that uh, in our context in Rwanda we had don't have picture in the hospital because people mm-hmm. are there it's yeah. full of people and uh, and uh, when someone live when the family members live abroad they mm-hmm. try to travel and mm-hmm. stay at least for the few days or weeks with mm-hmm. the patient because they are connecting to them. So I'll try to explain to him, it's a, it's a matter of how what we can learn from mm-hmm. other cultures, what we can learn from other side of the law. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we don't have access to morphine or the level we want, that means we don't practice palliative care. Mm-hmm. We, that is, of course, a challenge, but also we have something we can, I mean, we can share. Yeah. yeah, it's such an interesting observation coming from a completely different culture, um, yeah. that that would be something that was so striking to you. Um, I I think this the other reason why we people put pictures in the hospital rooms is because families want or the person wants to be seen as a person. And I'm not just um, someone in a bed with cancer or labeled palliative that I actually have had a life and there's people in my life. So, but, but I hear what you're saying. Um, it's, it's striking that the people aren't there. Yeah. Because yeah, for lots of reasons. And I don't think it's just because travels, you know, the distance between the East and the West coast, like you said, it's not a given, it's not part of the ethos of the culture is to you know drop everything and be around someone um and there's a beautiful you know there's so much that families can and do do for for their loved ones so much more than really the healthcare system they fill all the hours in between um and Sienna and I talk a lot about that in our podcast that the family is part of the unit of care um, and exactly. the spotlight has to be not just on the patient, but but the family. You're all exactly. going through this. Exactly. And uh, this um, it's what I describe uh, in uh, the book I just published uh, called the, the the Safari Concept. And the Safari Safari means journey. 
It's only, it's nothing with animals. I think when I mentioned that, people are laughing because it's nothing with animals. It's just mm -hmm. me journey in Swahili mm -hmm. and just moving from one place to another. Um, the, and in, in the book, I was explaining um, one of the approach I'm using is, I call it the butterfly, butterfly approach, as I said, because one end you have on the left wing, you have the patient's autonomy, expectation, privacy, everything from the patient. Mm -hmm. In other end, you are in the right uh, wing, you have the community responsibility based on resources, uh, norms, culture, and everything. Mm -hmm. And this is where I understood that our role as a physician has to be more than prescribing treatments. Mm -hmm. I think we, uh, my understanding is if you treat the disease, maybe sometimes you're missing treating the person. Mm -hmm. So, if, but if you treat the person, you cannot miss treating the disease as well. So it's mm -hmm. two different concepts. So, and, and I'm starting slowly to shift to treat the person more than treating the disease. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we are so focused on lab tests, everything, you know, mm -hmm. treatment, how we can adjust mm -hmm. uh, access to blah, 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 and everything, you know, we have a bunch and bunch and bunch exams Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, I'm, I'm sharing from my personal experiences mm -hmm. when I failed many times uh, uh, to, to, to treat the person because I was so narrowed, focused on the disease. Mm -hmm. Then I just realized it's something wrong. Then well, mm -hmm. how can I adjust that? And one of the idea was to bring the, the, the families and the community. But mm -hmm. In, in Rwanda, if you call a family meeting, how many people do you expect? <laughs> You're setting us up. Okay, I'm just going <laughs> to go for it. Five. This is the minimum because it's going to go to from five to 40. The last wow. meeting I had, I have 40 people in the room. Four zero. My role, my role is not to define who has to be part of the meeting. Is mm -hmm. they to define mm -hmm. what they call family. Mm -hmm. And they know exactly who has to be part of the meeting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they came 10, 20, 30 people. And the last meeting I had was 40 people I came. So mm -hmm. it's not the number of people in the room, it's the number of suffering in the room. And it's mm -hmm. only one, it's one mm -hmm. suffering. Mm -hmm. shared by the community to see the mm -hmm. loved one who is dying so if you if you focus on the number of people in the room of course you'll be i mean your reaction could be a little bit uh challenging for the families yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, intimidated <laughs> intimidated yeah because it's oh no guys i will not talk with you and if already the disease fracture individual society and the community mm -hmm. and you bring that you cannot talk to them and you will talk just for few people so then you are part of the challenge mm -hmm. you'll fraction more the disease mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's for the family you'll increase their suffering and will not release and they will be more depressed and that's why I came with the idea, let's invite the family meeting. Mm -hmm. the, it's my role is to reconcile the patient mm -hmm. and the community. Mm -hmm. So my, my role is to reconcile, to reconcile what was fragmented, what was fractured by the disease. Mm -hmm. So I see my role more than that. My role is not just prescribing because 
any pharmacist can do what if it's kind of medication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think physician, what's expecting from the patient and family members is sometimes to bridge, to bridge the, 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 the fractures, to bridge the gaps brought by the disease. Mm -hmm. And then to, to bring them to get reconciled, the role of reconciliation between the patient mm -hmm. and the family members. So when they come in the room, usually I'm asking five questions. Mm -hmm. And from those five questions, my role is to identify two things. One, who is the lion or the lioness in the room? Mm. There is always a dynamic uh, hierarchy in the family, mm -hmm. uh, depending which social events. If it's a wedding, it's totally different from the funeral, which mm -hmm. is totally different from the disease. Mm -hmm. And I need to identify who is the lion or the lioness. Mm -hmm. So, and the second point is to identify which kind of suffering expressed by the family members two different behaviors. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I, if I have a two those two elements, I can be able to support. So mm -hmm. uh, you can be 100, they can be 100, they can be 200. It doesn't matter the number of people, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. the, the number of suffering in the room. What did you mean and, by the two kinds of suffering? What did, can you just, I, I missed that second point. The second thing is you said there's two kinds of suffering or how many people are suffering? What did you mean? Sorry. No, I, I, when I mean suffering, it's what kind of suffering expressed by the family. Let me give you, uh, in my book, I give uh, so many examples. So I'm using uh, animal metaphor, animal mm -hmm. archetype to describe mm -hmm. uh, 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 a certain behavior came from the suffering. Mm -hmm. Let's say for the example, or what I call uh, the giraffe suffering. The giraffe suffering is uh, a suffering expressed by family members when they came with unrealistic and an, an, an attendant, you know, expectation. Mm -hmm. When they want, maybe, you know, most of our patients are in district hospital, they came at the district hospital and they want MRI, they want to see an oncologist, they want mm -hmm. to see blah, 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 they want to see. Mm -hmm. And it's most of family members who live abroad from US, mm -hmm. Canada, mm -hmm. and Australia when they travel back and they just want the patient, you know, in a district hospital, in, and especially in low and middle income countries, how do you expect to see, to have an MRI or CT scan mm -hmm. or an oncologist? Mm -hmm. You know, we are just lucky sometimes when you find the general practitioners, but if you find a specialist, you are more lucky, but how do you expect to have those vibes? And for, mm -hmm. for us, this interpretation is, is it just a suffering. There is a suffering of mistrust of mm -hmm. the local resources, local people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is really important. Instead of blaming the family that, oh, you are challenging, you don't understand, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. We understood this is kind of a suffering. Mm -hmm. And our, our best management is confidence with humility. That is the way we respond to them because it's a suffering. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't take you know, it personally. We don't mm -hmm. judge them because they're suffering. Another example is the Aina suffering. Aina suffering is the suffering expressed by family members when you saw so many conflicts between brothers, sisters, parents, cousins, uncle, aunties. Mm -hmm. You know, the disease brought up a strong conflict 
who was hiding from the family for many many years mm -hmm. and and for us this this kind of uh, uh, suffering is expressed uh, what the meaning is the, the patient is a source of conflict but also the source of connection mm -hmm. so the family has been in conflict for so many times maybe came out from the patient and now by feeling that the patient is going to die and that gaps of an opportunity of reconciliation, it doesn't work from, for them because they've been in conflict for so many years mm -hmm. and it's now a part of their life mm -hmm. and they cannot, you know, leave, leave them. Mm -hmm. So they need to keep on that, you know, comfort zone and the conflict is a comfort zone for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then the way we re respond, one is to identify who is the most influential person in the group. And mm -hmm. second, we don't have the meeting with all the family at the same time. So we mm -hmm. try to divide based on the identification uh, on the solution. And third, we are using sometimes legal perspective. So Christian, you're using animal safari metaphors to describe suffering and then how we as healthcare providers can respond. And you've told us about giraffe and hyena suffering. Is there another one you could share with us? Um, it's the tortures. Tortures suffering is the suffering expressed by family members when they came with a very, I mean, strong shield of religious and, uh, be, and uh, believed traditional mm -hmm. strong philosophy about cure. You can say anything they will not understand mm -hmm. because they strongly believe mm -hmm. that the patient will cure. And we understood uh, that the meaning of that kind of suffering is mm -hmm. there is unaccomplished or unfinished work. Maybe the patient was starting to build a house. He get promoted at the job. He's going to be graduated from uh, a, a school and or the patient just uh, got a, a green card to move in US or in Canada. So that unfinished work is difficult for family to understand because that mm -hmm. is suffering from them. There is no, mm -hmm. we cannot know because there is so many things the patient has to do for us. Mm -hmm. And for us, uh, the management of this kind of suffering uh, uh, is um, language matters. So mm -hmm. let's say, for example, if they are Christian, Christian families. When I'm getting in the room, I remove my lab white, uh, my lab white coat, and my stethoscope. I just come with a normal clothes, and I'm sitting there among them, and I say, "Praise God, or oh, glory to be, I mean, glory to mm -hmm. God, or something." Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then um, if they are Muslim uh, family, and say, "Salam uh, alaikum." And if I'm prescribing, I say, let's see, inshallah, alhamdulillah, we hope that everything will be okay. If mm -hmm. it's a traditional, I'm using also traditional vocabularies and, and everything, because mm -hmm. that will not remove my, my, my physician, you know, status or everything, but mm -hmm. just put myself on the language they can understand. Because if you use the language, then you melt the shield and you'll be able to be part of them. So in the book, I describe uh, 12 animal archetype, which is mm -hmm. 12 meaning of suffering and 12 language and 12 solutions. Mm. Wow. Yeah, the book is called The Safari Concept, an African Framework for End-of-Life Care, and it's available now. And uh, you know our listeners, and we're going to get it. 
And, and I love the metaphors because that's what, you know, we found was so important for the waiting room revolution. So much of what you're saying, like I'm just nodding my head. People can't see <laughs> because it resonates so much with um, my experience as well. Uh, I have always worked in people's homes and uh, it's not part of medical training. It's not a mandatory yeah. part of medical training. So people get trained basically in clinics or in hospitals. And yeah. so the role and their view of the family is very different than my view providing home-based palliative care. I have the utmost respect for when you enter into someone's home, you are yeah. on their turf, their property, and yeah. in their home, their culture. And I'm like you, Christian, I never show up with a white coat or a stethoscope around my neck. I am just a human who happens to be a physician. And I too approach the care in a very human, just very plain language, um, you know, very comfortable environment. And that has, um, that has afforded me to do much more satisfying work mm -hmm. with patients and families than if I was walking around just talking Latin and Greek and medical terms all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so many of our physician colleagues feel helpless yeah. at a certain point in the illness journey because they do not know how to lean in uh, the same way that we do. Um, you know, when you can no longer fix something or cure something or have another treatment or a test for something, they often they don't know what to offer. And mm -hmm. we are the best therapeutic intervention, uh, you know, as a human with with experience and knowledge helping to reconcile all of these different types not reconcile but reconcile some of the problems that have um, created the disconnects that we see um, the power differential between the doctor knows everything but the patient and their and the family you know don't know as much as the doctor or you know that the patient um, gets all the focus, but the family's in the shadows. Like there are so many things to, to reconcile. I, I, I think you're right. I think our main role as palliative care physicians is to attend and identify suffering, different types of suffering, but also like you said, to reconcile so many issues that have created an illness journey that has been yeah derailed yeah. and contributed yeah. to suffering yeah exactly like i know you 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 articulate it very well the yeah. disease you know brought different um disconnection even yeah. the patient is disconnected with humanity yeah. and disconnected to his role or a role in the in the society and uh, mm -hmm. and it's why I'm, I'm 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 thinking that our role is more than that it's more than mm -hmm is to re have this kind of reconciliation because that will bring also an harmony uh, mm -hmm. between the patient and the environment mm -hmm. and uh, it's as i said it's not the number of of a participant in the room it's just mm -hmm. the number of suffering and mm -hmm. almost one just one suffering expressed on yeah. different behaviors yeah. and uh, and if you mm -hmm. understand the language of uh, mm -hmm. suffering and, and it's so it's easy when I think um, using the, the the safari concept because mm -hmm. when I discuss with my my colleague and say you know what I just came from a meeting and uh, 
we had the Aina suffering, you know, in just it's one second. They understand, mm -hmm. <laughs> they understand the challenge, they understand this, and those they understand the challenge, they understand the meaning, mm -hmm. and they understand also the solution. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's why local local context matters, and mm -hmm. I totally understand you know the context in U.S. and the Europe about the patient autonomy, mm -hmm. and uh, but I understand also there is opportunity from all of us uh, to create if we need to create a global palliative care um, community, we need first to connect at a local level because global is local, mm -hmm. and there is, we we cannot connect a community without connecting identities mm -hmm. and that is something really important so mm -hmm. uh, different contexts different perspective but mm -hmm. how we can learn from each other how when i come i'm traveling uh, uh, i'm going to come in 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 canada in in october spending time with that the um, gary roden uh, mm -hmm. at margaret on uh, for almost a month and uh, you know, I will be there to learn, to learn mm -hmm. from Canadian perspective, to learn also from the challenges, and also have an opportunity also to share from uh, from mm -hmm. us. So everyone will pick up from uh, what is I can learn from this culture, what is mm -hmm. what is really important, and and that's if we we focus on that, I'm pretty sure the next palliative care generation mm -hmm. will release. Uh, I think most of suffering we have now, maybe we will find that different challenges, but at mm -hmm. least at this level, something will be changed. And I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm hoping for that. But there's another saying that I want to just um, unpack a bit with that you that you've talked about is decolonizing palliative yeah. care. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in North America, we don't really think about that as much. But what do you mean by that? Like, why is it so important? And, and, and what does that look like from from your perspective? Yeah, uh, I think it's um, um, recently. I think before COVID, um, there was a there was a movement to try to standardize, you know, palliative care as one palliative care need to be. I mean, some indicators, the matrix has to be used everywhere in the world. The world, and I and I remember I was part part of uh, some of the discussion, and this was really challenging to me because I say you can put everybody on the same standard because we don't have the same norms and and even understanding even the perception of care is totally different from from one setting to another because death and dying is so connected and, and related to the identity of the person and, and uh, it, just putting one standard palliative care for everybody my understanding is that will be uh, that will affect, you know, our practice. That will impact our practice. And uh, and, and based on my experiences, when I failed uh, many times when I was in Boston trying to duplicate the model from Boston in Kigali, and I've been conflicting with the patient, my colleagues, and, and uh, the environment. Uh, uh, that's why I came. That maybe we need uh, to decolonize uh, um, end of life because. Um, uh, practice can change because local local contexts change, and we mm -hmm. need we need a different model. But if if you understand, if we understood, uh, uh, I mean the uh, what can I say? The rich culture we have from different perspective. I think mm -hmm. we will 
we can create something beautiful I cannot find in internal medicine, in surgery and pediatry. We will create that sense of uh, not only any sense of humanity, but we'll create a, a strong, um, let's say, platform and approach when everybody, physician, family gives, and the patient will find themselves a role to play instead of mm. to be a consumers or a client or a providers mm -hmm. because we'll be navigating on on that approach so it was kind of to uh, remind all of us uh that we we need a uh, a different perspective it's mm -hmm. not what works in rwanda must works in in canada and what works in canada should not be imposed to uh, other uh, settings because they have a way of thinking, they have a, a different of uh, perception and that also has to be uh, taken into account. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm saying we need to decolonize end of life care, what will be the lesson and what will be also the opportunity. And, uh, uh, and that was my, my, uh, my approach and that's, uh, yeah. It's interesting um, because <clears throat> there are so many common elements, though, that you're talking about that I completely relate to in the work here in, in Canada. So I feel like although so many communities and countries have different culture and we must pay attention um, and allow that to influence um, us, I also think that there are some common threads um, this idea of humanized care, uh, the ideas of suffering, the ideas of family and community. Um, you know, when you when you think about it, that those things are would probably cross different countries. It would yeah. unify. <laughs> but yeah. the approach has to look at those things, not some other rigid structure for palliative care. It's more the things we're talking about that should be the common elements, yeah. you know, in palliative care in any country, you know, the role of the community, the family, the person seen as a human, the doctor seen as not almighty and all knowing. And, you know, these are the, out the communication. These are the common elements of palliative care. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and uh, because I had that opportunity to travel and different uh, places and I've learned a, a lot. And uh, unfortunately, we have uh, still challenging from my colleague from Western country to, uh, to, to come and learn from us. And I remember that was a long time ago in 2014. I remember um, I was just um, in the beginning of my, my palliative care profession career. Mm -hmm. And that time, um, Professor Bernard Lapointe was... Um, uh, he gave some scholarship from people from low income country to come and present about the work. And I remember in um, in Montreal, uh, we have a session from low income countries. And I was that time, you know, presenting that we don't have access to morphine enough. And, uh, you know, um, you know, it was very it was an early beginning program, you know, starting the country and uh, and and the part of the participant, one participant, you know, just said, um, "Christian, what you are doing is not palliative care." And I was, you know, I was wow. shocked. <laughs> I was shocked, you know. 
uh, of course, I didn't expect that people will say, wow, you're doing a good job. But uh, to say that I everything we, we did, you know, all the limited resources available to the country, all the training we had with the team, the multidisciplinary team we set, uh, starting to talking with the patients and uh, even using codeine as a second, you know, second step for those uh, even morphine was not full, full available in the country. But all those efforts for him was like, no, this is not palliative care at all. This is, it's, you can call it something else, but it's not palliative care. Then for me, it was like, I mean, this is, was the shock of my life. And uh, and because I was so happy and enthusiastic, you know, presenting, yeah. you know, so our small, you know, effort by, to relieve suffering from family members and someone mm -hmm. just came and slapped you in the face that this is not and like, it's uh it's i mean it was kind of discouraging but also another sense was also encouraging to say maybe um, um we need to continue that way maybe they don't understand our setting they don't understand maybe the local context they don't understand mm -hmm. our social perspective and uh and it's pushing me more and more I and mean, say some people can be biased because they don't have enough information mm -hmm. But if they have enough information, maybe their perspective may change. So let's mm -hmm. still give hope mm -hmm. and uh, let's still open windows and create a platform of, uh, of mutual exchanging program instead of mm -hmm. to be biased. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I still think we're training people sort of like that person in Montreal, you know, where there's a very narrow definition of palliative care and what the role of a palliative care doctor. Um, and so sometimes my biggest fear is that amongst my own palliative care colleagues, we don't have um, an appreciation for some of these broader ideas about palliative mm -hmm. care. Um, yeah. Have you thought about what you wish you had said to that person? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think, I think uh, you know, I was, uh, I was just shocked I didn't say anything because how can I respond because he never been in uh, in Rwanda and mm -hmm. uh, I totally understand basically if you 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 grew up on that um, framework and you get uh, this kind of uh, uh, teaching that maybe you are the best you have access to not only to morphine oxycodone mm -hmm. hydromorphone and the fentanyl patch and uh, you know yeah. all the stuff and uh, you have the guy who just say you know uh, when someone severe pain I'm trying to give that uh, combine maybe uh, I don't know uh, astaminophen parastamol and codeine yeah. sometimes mm -hmm. tramadol uh, with mm -hmm. so many side effects but with what was available and the guy say no this is do not you think that's what he meant he meant that's not palliative care because palliative care is medicine it includes medicines and uh, you know, I think if I was going to respond to him, I would have said, so how do you define palliative care? I think that time I was young. So I, <laughs> yeah, I always, you know what, when these things happen to me, I spend hours thinking, what should I have said? I wish I could have said something, you know, but you're no, not the same as me. You're a very peaceful, calm, you learn yeah, and you but, move on. And I, I, <laughs> I, mean, I think I think also that time I was I was young and uh, maybe not enough experiences on uh, like now, but you feel intimidated uh, when you have a comment yeah, I feel like intimidated that. because it's yeah. on my first it was my first conference in, yeah. in Canada and uh, I think it was even my first conference uh, out of uh, 
out of Kigali and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so but I, you know all all you've done since then is go deeper and deeper and deeper into this work and I am eating up everything you're saying I love it I, I relate to it completely but do you ever imagine a world where the target audience for these 12 archetypes aren't clinicians, but could be the public. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, maybe some, maybe somebody in the family, maybe some patients are very self-aware, could identify the kind of suffering that they might be having or might be likely mm -hmm. to have, and therefore say, this is the kind of suffering I think we might present. This is what I think we need to, mm -hmm. to move forward the best. Could you, when you wrote that, was your target audience of clinicians? And could you imagine a world where it was patients and yeah. families? So actually, thanks for actually the um, during my my journey, um, it's why I'm saying suffering is journey, and it's journey of three kind of people: one for the physician, one for the patient, and the family caregivers. So uh, I had the chance to, um, when it was a manuscript, to give it on on three three those three people. One, uh, I get a chance to get feedback mm -hmm. from the patient. I get the to be feedback from a uh, family members. Uh, those who have patient and those uh, they patient passed away and also from my colleague physician and uh, all of them will say this kind of uh, it this this book was really helpful because I was expressing something they mm -hmm. cannot express by themselves mm -hmm. uh, from the patient from her family members and especially from my colleagues because you say you 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 articulate it very well this kind of suffering and I, and mm -hmm. I'm, I was using simple words without mm -hmm. any medical jargon and everyone can get access on, on it mm -hmm. and um and, and because I I believe my best statement is uh, the way people die can reflect how the society lives mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. if we need a better society uh, we need to also to understand to to focus on how our patient died, mm -hmm. and uh, and and the learning from them is something mm -hmm. really important. Not only in terms of metrics, because we are we have now so many things and the most mm -hmm. and information, but still suffering. It's something we need to be addressed, and uh, and that's depending from one society to another. But having that experience is brought together, I think it should be something really important. Yes, the book is accessible to everyone, not only for physicians, because everyone has his own journey. I have my journey as a physician, which is totally different from the perspective of the patients and also the family members. But how to reconcile the both, for me, was just um, that journey was, uh, was really focused on this book. Mm -hmm. You picked yeah. up on themes. There were themes yeah. over and over patterns and trends. Yes. And exactly. you observe that and then you could capture it in your safari animals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because when I have uh, people sitting 40, 30 people in the room, uh, I'm, I'm not intimidated by the number. I'm not intimidated by the mm -hmm. position. I know exactly which question I'm going to ask. And uh, I will poke the I will poke the beer. <laughs> I will poke the <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the lion the lion will come up either it could yeah. be uh, elder person or elder mm -hmm. woman or mm -hmm. one of the rich person in the family or the most educated person so mm -hmm. it's very dynamic depending on the circumstance mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah because we have our normal hierarchy which is we have the patriarchal or the matriarchal in the family 
but mm -hmm. depending from the social event depending from different circumstances the 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 i mean the role of the lion can move from one person to another mm -hmm. and yeah. that was mm -hmm. something really important to understand mm -hmm. which was kind of obvious in our family when people resolve conflict mm -hmm. but uh but but if i was not pushed by my colleague uh, from from us to write about this book and to publish about what we are doing maybe i will just keeping it for me so this mm -hmm. is why I'm saying we need this kind of collaboration to yeah. value the mm -hmm. expertise by experiences from mm -hmm. local people. I, I feel like there is something that unifies us as a human race. And so, you know, maybe language matters, culture definitely matters. And I think it isn't about, it is about recognizing expertise, but culture should influence the way it is implemented and the way it's meaning. And so culture has a huge role to play, but I don't know if it's only science and measurement and randomized trials mm -hmm. that are going to elucidate culture. In fact, I think cultural uh, influence is probably at a higher level than just sort of knowledge because knowledge is just fact, but culture is meaning interpretation. But um, but I did wonder if you if at the end of it, the ways that you approach um, these conversations are really fundamentally the same as the way Sammy would. I, I don't know. I guess I'll read your book and find out, but um yeah what is your sense having seen these happen in all over the world i think um I'm, I'm a very positive guy i think i'm i'm hoping i think the experiences uh come from um the genocide against the tutsi in 1994 when we we lost uh, one million people in 100 days um but humanity itself seems lost that time and i'm strongly believe that the concept of palliative care will also contribute to bring back the sense of humanity we lost during the genocide because palliative care is not only about withdrawing or withholding medication. It's, it's also about dignity, humanity, and Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I said, um, let's say, for example, by inviting me for this podcast, I think you have a bunch and bunch of speakers around the world. and. Uh, and by collecting all those stories, putting on the platform, so each one can learn from others. It's, it's this is, I mean, a bunch of philosophy. This is why you reconcile from different perspective. And this is can bring me, can give me also a sense of hope that I'm not alone in this, you know, journey. Uh, so in our journey, we can have also a different per person from different uh, country with thinking like me, with thinking that maybe mm -hmm. we can work together. It's mm -hmm. not about, oh, I'm the best, I'm the one who's doing everything. You know, mm -hmm. it's about we, because mm -hmm. it's about all of us. Mm -hmm. And as we said, culture is very, it's very strong. It's mm -hmm. very strong on identity. And I saw that even when I'm traveling in the US and Canada and so random families, they're still, even if they're working in the US and Canada, but they still keep they culture mm -hmm. on very simple thing yeah and that was uh, yeah. something yeah. really important ubuntu means we live through other people it means we right society is a we. yes what, it's, what, it's what not about i you know it's totally different from the cartesian philosophy i think therefore i am ubuntu it's about um i am because we are yes that's it. it's the humanity towards others because we don't define as I uh, we define as we and when I'm admit my patient I never say your patient or the patient I'm always say we our patients 
Yeah. Our patient is suffering this one. Our patient need this and mm -hmm. our patient need that. So our, yeah. by changing that, you know, yeah. the family feel included and they, they also include me in the cycle. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to finish, last year I lost, um, I lost my brother. Uh, it was a very painful situation uh, because I wasn't in the country and they told me that he just passed away. Then I came back when I, I traveled back home and um, seeing, you know, those pay, all the, the, the community uh, came at, the, at home uh, every day is almost 200 and 300 people every day. Wow. They were there from morning to evening. Mm -hmm. And then during the funeral was almost, uh, if I'm not mistaken, around 1,000 and 2,000 people. Because for us, uh, the funeral is about, it's a social event. Mm -hmm. So the more you have the community, I was seeing, you know, old friends, people we, we didn't see each other for a long time. There was mm -hmm. already there every time, you know. The, 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 the time of, I mean, the grief and bereavement process from the half family was kind of shared to the whole community, which relieved, you know, yourself and, and the family was, was well absorbed uh, mm -hmm. than feeling alone, sitting mm -hmm. yourself and thinking about why, uh, why, why he died. And, you know, I'm, I'm the physician uh, in, in the family. I'm supposed to be there. Why didn't, you know, mm -hmm. all those why, you know, starting to disappear. And I feel myself, you know, connected with the community. I feel myself mm -hmm. part of the community. And they were with us during the seven days. And then we have uh, the funeral and uh, thousands of people coming and uh, talking about the, his accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, and just, uh, just realize death is an accomplishment. And uh, yeah, and that was really part of to relieve, you know, the suffering mm -hmm. and, uh, and the move forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Christian, I really want to thank you for being so vulnerable and inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for mm -hmm. inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.